Hi, I'm Dr. Marsha, and you're listening to the Self-Care Chronicle. As a licensed psychologist, I know the importance of self-care in maintaining my mental wellness. But I'm often pretty busy running around trying to help others navigate their way through life. And when my schedule gets really hectic, I struggle with self-care. The very self-care that I always recommend to other people. And that made me wonder, am I the only one? How do other mental health professionals handle their self-care? So I reached out to a bunch of my peers and asked them if they would talk to me about their experiences. Join me each week as I chat with a fellow mental health professional about stress management and self-care. Welcome to the Self-Care Chronicle. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Self-Care Chronicle. I'm Dr. Marsha and I'm a licensed psychologist. Each week on the podcast, I chat with a different mental health professional about how they handle their own self-care. Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Elizabeth Rodriguez. Dr. Rodriguez is a licensed psychologist in New York and New Jersey. She specializes in the evaluation and treatment of individuals with mental illness who are incarcerated or involved in the criminal justice system. She currently serves as a supervisor in a maximum security facility in the Northeast. Dr. Rodriguez also owns and operates a private practice called Clinical and Forensic Psychological Assessments. In her practice, Dr. Rodriguez provides expert evaluations of clients who are in immigration proceedings or facing criminal charges. There's just too much to list here about Dr. Rodriguez and all the awesome stuff she's done. But after the show, make sure you go to drmarshabrown.com slash deconstructing stress to find out more about the incredibly important work that Dr. Rodriguez does. I am honored to have her on with me today. So let's jump right into our chat. Welcome, Dr. Elizabeth Rodriguez. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you for having me. So let's jump right into it. Can you tell us a little about your journey into your current position, starting with your journey into psychology itself? Sure. So my journey was a bit indirect. I never thought much about becoming a psychologist when I was growing up or had an interest, even though my high school offered a psychology class. It was just not something that I ever thought I would pursue in my adult life. I went and pursued my bachelor's degree and I initially started college with the goal of wanting to go into sports medicine. But I learned (laughs) pretty quickly that those jobs are very hard to come by and most likely I would work at a high school or have some job that was not particularly well-paying and was not what I imagined that I wanted to do. In the course of my first or second year of college and pursuing that sports medicine path, I took an abnormal psychology class, which was a requirement. And I became very interested just from that class. I thought, wow, this might be a field that is more interesting to me than sports medicine. So I decided to switch my major. And when I was a junior in college, I was looking for a job to make some extra money And I learned from a friend that there was a psychiatric hospital in our small town 
and that they were looking to hire psychiatric technicians. So he recruited me in essence, and I began working at this hospital part-time late night shifts as a psych tech. And it was mostly adolescents that I worked with. And it was work like taking them to their meals, taking them to classes, making sure that they were sleeping in their beds when they're supposed to be in beds, those sorts of tasks. So I was working in the psychiatric hospital. I was pursuing my bachelor's degree. And then I took an elective that was psychology and the law. And this was a broad class, and I became very interested in how the legal section and psychology intersect from this course. And I met a graduate student around the same time, a couple of graduate students who were working on research projects about lie detection, and also were planning to take the study to a local prison that was just right outside the city we were living in. And so I agreed to join their research project as a research assistant, and I would go with them, and we would drive out to this prison and bring in all this equipment, set it up in like, it was almost like a cafeteria. We would set up all this equipment, and prisoners would come in, and we would interview them, and we would do an experiment where we either had them lie or tell the truth. And then another prisoner's job would be to tell us whether they thought that person was lying or telling the truth. And the whole point of the study was to compare whether prisoners were better at detecting lies than undergraduate psychology students. So being in that prison made me even more interested in pursuing psychology and the legal system. So I decided to apply for a doctorate. So I made it to New York and started a doctoral program that had a concentration on forensics and forensic clinical psychology. So in the course of the doctoral program, I had various placements at psychiatric hospitals, which soon became my primary interest. So working with people who had severe and persistent mental illnesses, people who were on inpatient units, that became the population that I was most interested in. That really became what I was passionate about. And I also quickly learned that the criminal justice system, our jails and our prisons have a high proportion of inmates who are severely mentally ill and often underserved. And I felt like that is the place where I would be needed and also be very stimulated by, be interested in and feel passionate about. So I ended up pursuing those types of placements, that type of internship and those sorts of jobs in my career. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about the most stressful thing about your job? There's several (laughs) things that are stressful. I will say there's kind of the big picture and then there's the current moment. So the current moment is contracting coronavirus every day I go to work. That is my current stress. When I can put that aside, which most days I can, I think the most stressful thing for me historically and currently to literally today something happened is seeing extreme situations Or again, like hearing about extreme situations and traumatizing things that happen to you as the psychologist or to your patients who you feel a lot of empathy or connection to. So seeing people at the lowest points of their lives, truly. Yeah. 
seeing high amounts of aggression, seeing extreme despair and sadness and desperation is Mm -hmm. so painful. And as a psychologist, you connect with your patients, right? You connect with these people, you know about their lives, you're invested in trying to help them improve coping skills, help them improve their day-to-day life when they return to the community. When you see awful things happen to them, things that you can't control, it is an awful feeling and it just it's hard to shake that off. Yeah, absolutely. Being part of a helping profession where the reason that we got into it was to help others, but then doing so as part of a system where you have so little power as a psychologist, it's not very encouraging sometimes. Yes. You can do the best assessment of a patient. You can do the best treatment of a patient. And at the end of the day, there are things you can't control. So for example, today, there's a patient I did an evaluation on to see if he suffers from dementia. I assessed him last week. I do think he has dementia, likely alcohol-induced from a lifelong history of drinking heavy amounts of alcohol, and wrote a report to hopefully get him to some specialized housing, hopefully get him in a safer place than what he's currently in, in inside the jail. And before any of that stuff could happen, because he's so cognitively impaired and does not have the wherewithal to act properly around other inmates and understand social cues, he was severely assaulted today. And to know that kills me. It just broke my heart to know someone so impaired was assaulted and there is nothing I can do about that or could have done besides the work that I already did trying to advocate for him. That still happened. Yeah, that is awful. And that is also super stressful because I think it's just natural to when you're trying to help somebody, you want to see some results from that, or you want to see that you've helped or that you've improved. And then working in that kind of system, there are just so many things that you can't anticipate. There are so many things you can't prepare for and so many things you have zero control over. Right. And that's hard. It's hard not being able to control all the things you want to and then having to also step back and say, okay, I've, I've done what I can and then try to leave that at the end of the day when you leave work. Right. So how are you able to not take that home with you? I'd be lying if I said I don't take it home. I don't think you can just cut it off leaving work or at least I can't. Certainly even now I have about an hour long commute from my work to my home. So while I'm driving, I take that as step one of, okay, I really need to try to disconnect. And so just in that one hour in the car, I like to listen to podcasts or music really loud and <laughs> sing the whole way home. That, that's like my step one is either get super engaged in a podcast or listen to some really fun music that makes me feel good. That way, by the time I get home, I feel like I've wound down some, but I truly need that hour of just by myself with my thoughts where I don't have to talk to anyone or interact and can wind down. So I think that helps me just before I even get in the door, but it stays with me. It it does stay with me throughout my days. You know, there are things that have happened years ago with patients that still come up in my mind every now and then. I think it's impossible when you truly care about the work you're doing or the patients you're treating to really leave it at work and disconnect from it. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any other things that you find that you wanted to mention that that are stressful about your job? 
I think, you know, I mentioned kind of like the traumatization. I think that's probably the biggest, but another disturbing part of the job is at times how others are not traumatized by things that are so disturbing because they're already like patients that are already highly traumatized. So kind of seeing these people who have almost like a learned helplessness, that's another disturbing part of this work because so many of the inmates have seen so many awful things, things that are worse than what we see on a day-to-day in the jail that that it's like, eh, it's an yeah. everyday occurrence. So that is also really stressful. And then I think the unknown of your day-to-day can be stressful. You don't know what is coming with each encounter or with each day. And that, although it's stimulating and interesting, and that's one of the things I actually like about it, is you don't know. It's not mundane. It's not rote. Every day is something different. Right. It's also stressful, right? Like you, you're kind of like in this fight or flight at times. Right. And can you talk a little bit about how have things changed for you in terms of your private practice as well as your job in the secured facility? How have those things changed since COVID-19? Not necessarily the flow of business, but how have your methods changed in terms of your ability to do the work that you want to be doing? Well, with my work in the facility, I think it's most it's more obvious than the private practice. So in the facility, I'll give you an example. So the man I mentioned that I was assessing for dementia, I was... <laughs> in the evaluation, sitting in a room with him in a small room, I'm wearing a mask, a face shield. There's an interpreter on the phone, on speakerphone, and I'm trying to speak through all my PPE to the interpreter to interpret to this patient who has dementia. Oh, wow. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Like, like you know, no one can hear each other. Like, no. you can't make good eye contact because your face shield is fogging up the whole time. Right. Um, so it's it's things like you know the PPE getting in the way of like you displaying facial expressions and your affect, kind of like being a means of support or a means of connecting to the patients. I feel like that's all gone, and that's weird for me because I'm a very facially expressive person in my work. So so that has been odd for me to have that taken away. And it makes me far more aware of the words I use or like other forms of body language to show that I'm listening or or being empathic. So that's the the weirdest part is wearing all this PPE. and And the patients look at you like, oh my God, like they're like freaked out by all the PPE you're wearing also. Right. I'm sure. So I know that you mentioned a little bit ago in terms of once you leave the facility, just needing that time to belt out songs in the car or just you know decompress. Can you talk a little bit about self-care? How do you practice it? Do you have some go-to methods or a go-to method that you know if you do this, that you will feel a ton better? Anything like that? Yeah, self-care for me is very important. I think I learned early in my career how important it is for me to have good self-care or else I cannot be a good psychologist and I just can't be a good person at all. Like I kind of just fall apart if I'm devoting all my energy to others and trying to help others or putting others' needs before mine. If I do that without end, then it just hurts me a lot. For me, self-care is deliberate. It's something I carve into my schedule and I make sure there is time for it on a day 
daily basis. So really my go-to number one is exercise. So I love anything as simple as just going for a walk, but my favorite is to practice vinyasa. That is my favorite form of exercise, particularly going to hot vinyasa classes. The hotter and the longer the class, the better. (laughs) Um, I could be in there for hours and then totally zone out and just be moving and breathing and enjoying. And that makes me feel unbelievable after a class. It's my favorite form of exercise and self-care. And because of coronavirus, obviously, I have not been able to do that (laughs) for several months now. And it's I really miss being able to go to those hot classes. And what I've done to adapt is to do vinyasa here in my home. Obviously, it's not hot, but still the movement and just having that time is very helpful. Basics like eating well, making sure I carve out time for all my meals and snacks for a day, making sure those are healthy. Meal prepping and planning my meals is something I enjoy. I enjoy cooking. My physical health is very important to me. And with that comes adequate sleep. So I also prioritize my sleep. I need seven hours in the bed every night more. That's that's even better. But sleep is not something I'm willing to compromise on because I just feel awful without it. Right. I think something else that's important for me, and I get this with the vinyasa and with walking, is just having time that's only for me, where I'm not attending to family. I'm not doing anything that takes from me, where I'm only doing things that are just for me. I love that alone time, even if it's a 10-minute walk. Just those 10 minutes is rejuvenating. It doesn't have to be a long time, but I really value that kind of quiet time just for me. Absolutely. That's so important. And you made such a great point when you first started answering this question. If you don't take that time out for yourself where you're making sure that you're okay, you can't just keep pushing through it and expect it to end well. You'll have to at some point take care of yourself before you take care of other people. Right. And I think sometimes some of us, and I know myself included, have a tendency to just try to get a little bit more done or help somebody else a little bit more or just do this one thing. And it has led me to not taking care of myself and cheating myself on the self-care part of it. So I think sometimes it might be a challenge getting to that place where you're just like, nope, I know I have to do this. I have to do this for myself to function, to make sure that I can take care of everything I need to take care of. Yeah, I think I constantly live in that zone that you mentioned of, I have one more thing to do. Oh, I could be doing this. I need to do this. There's always something to do (laughs) that you need to be doing. And I certainly feel that compulsion to do all those things. But like you said, I know at the end of the day, I'm going to feel worse for it. Maybe someone, maybe some other task got completed, but who cares if I feel awful? Right. I've noticed that when I especially feel that way, when I notice like my anxiety is high and I'm thinking, I need to do this, I need to do that. And I like kind of the thoughts start getting a little too fast or (laughs) too jumbled. That is my cue to you have to stop and do something for yourself. Like even though it's hard and that's maybe when it's hardest to step aside, that's to me the cue that something is wrong. You got to get out of this, recenter, and then you can come back to it in half an hour. And I'm always grateful when I do, because when I come back, I feel better and I feel like I can focus again. And I'm likely more productive than I would have been if I had just kind of kept pushing through and doing all these things without attention to what my body and my mind really needed in that moment. 
Right. Yeah, that's great. I could definitely use that advice because I just, you know, <laughs> like one more thing, one more thing, yeah. I'll push through it. But then at some point you reach the point of diminishing returns, right? Because yeah, you're pushing through it, but if you are just completely spent, how good is the work going to be? And how are you harming yourself on the other end? Exactly. You mentioned that idea of wanting to do one more thing or help one more person. Would you say that's the most challenging part of practicing self-care for you? And if not, what is the most challenging part of self-care for you? I think that is half of the pie, but there's another half of it as well for me. What I struggle with, I think I'm much better at it now, but previously or earlier in my life, I think what I struggled with was feeling guilty about making time for myself feeling guilty about enjoying something for myself, if that makes sense. Um, like yeah. allowing myself to feel that enjoyment when there are other things that should be getting done. Because I think there are times when I, even if I do give myself that time for self-care, I'm beating myself up about it. Like while I'm going for that walk, I'm thinking, oh, I should be doing this. I should, I'm not doing a good job here or there. <laughs> and yep. that just defeats the whole purpose. <laughs> so one of the things that's really hard for me is, and I work on actively, is how to not feel guilty about giving myself that time. How to not feel guilty about, for example, not spending time with my family for those 20 minutes, instead doing some stretching on my yoga mat for those 20 minutes. How do I not experience guilt that whole time? And I guess one of the things that's been helpful is seeing that even if I do take that time for myself, even if I'm feeling guilty, when I come out of it, you know, no one is mad at me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Like no, no one, no one cares that I just went for a twenty-minute walk or did a twenty-minute stretch. Like it's all me being hard on myself about right. it. It doesn't align with the external reality, which then makes me feel like okay, now I can like let go of that guilt because it's just not necessary. Right. And you mentioned that the walks and the vinyasa are your go-to methods. Was there some trial and error for you? Or did you find those two methods pretty early on in your self-care journey? I would say with the vinyasa, that started about a decade ago. So when I was in nice. my internship, I randomly kind of fell into a yoga studio. <laughs> and <laughs> it was something that had never crossed my mind as an exercise that I would enjoy. I had always enjoyed exercising. I was active as a teenager and a young adult doing running or playing some sports, but I had never tried yoga. And once I tried it, I was instantly connected to that and felt like that was something that I was really passionate about. So once I found it, I was in and didn't feel the need to go anywhere else. I have done other things at other points since then in the last 10 years, other forms of exercise. And I just, I always want to come back to yoga. It's the most invigorating, energizing, satisfying form for me because in addition to the physical, it's also, as you know, yoga is about challenging the mind, how to calm the mind, how to stay calm when situations are really hectic and hard when you're in a 105 degree room and you're doing some really intense pose. How do you keep your mind calm, how do you keep that breath going when everything is telling you to freak out <laughs> and mm. run out? Um, so I find that it's the mental practice of that that has also been helpful to me in my professional life, but also just in my day-to-day -day life as a person, right? Of connecting with others. It's something that I really love. So I think I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's excellent. Thank you so much for this. This was awesome. This is really great. I enjoyed it. And thank you for sharing your journey and talking a little bit about self-care. What are you up to these days in terms of your practice? Sure. So my practice, which is based out of New Jersey, is called Clinical and Forensic Psychological Assessments, LLC. That is my practice where I do have some private therapy patients, but the main focus is providing expert evaluations of clients when they're facing either criminal charges. I do a lot of work within the immigration proceedings, and specifically I focus on cases where the court or the individual's lawyer has concerns about their competence to proceed. So I do evaluations of competency. I also focus on doing evaluations of diagnostic clarification. So, you know, maybe a lawyer has a client that's going through a legal case and they think maybe that person has a mental illness, but they're not sure and they want to find out if that person can maybe have some sort of mental health diversion. I do evaluations to help the lawyer understand what sorts of mental health issues that client does or does not have and provide recommendations for possible treatment for that person's illness. And I really also enjoy doing psychological testing in my private practice. So that kind of goes hand in hand with the diagnostic clarification. And I also do some intellectual and cognitive assessments of people. So questions about someone's IQ, whether they're intellectually disabled in some way. Those are the types of services I provide through my private practice. Very important work. It's much needed in terms of making sure that there are interventions to get people the help that they need, but also make sure that throughout their experience within the criminal justice system, that they'll get what they need and they'll be treated fairly and that they can participate in the process as much as possible. So one last question. I like to call this, I guess some people call it a lightning round, but it's just nothing to do with anything serious. It's just a hypothetical. So I just want you to tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. So the situation is that it is the very beginning of the zombie apocalypse. And <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> I'm in. Okay. <laughs> I thought you might be. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to decide what you're going to get first. So do you get food, shelter, or weapons first? Weapons. Weapons. Why? Because I'm going to kill all those zombies that come for me and my family. <laughs> we, can, we can go weeks without food. We can go without shelter. We can hide under a bush. But if a yes. zombie comes and tries to kill us and I don't have a weapon, we're gone. Yeah, that is very true. Very true. Very good answer. I like it. I like it. <laughs> it kind of has felt like the zombie apocalypse recently, right? Yeah. At times I'm just like, mm, this is eerily similar. Um, <laughs> I, I will say though that the coronavirus apocalypse has led me to hoard a lot of food though. So, so even though, even in your hypothetical, I, I yes. kind of in reality went for the food. So I don't know what that says. <laughs> you're, you're not alone. I've been to the grocery store both when this first started and now. And yeah, it is very similar to an apocalypse. And I think a lot of people were going for the food aspect, although it's not as bad as it was before, but there's still some unpredictable stuff going on yeah. out there. About two weeks ago, they stopped limiting the amount of packs of chicken or meat you could buy. It was two mm -hmm. at a time for a long time. And I noticed two weeks ago that you could buy unlimited and I was like the best day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my god! I can buy ten packs of chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Elizabeth Rodriguez, for taking the time to chat with me today. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you for joining me for the Self-Care Chronicle. If you liked this episode, please pass it along to someone else who might enjoy it. To find out more about today's episode or listen to additional episodes, visit drmarshabrown.com and click on Deconstructing Stress. That's D-R-M-A-R-S-H-A-B-R-O-W-N.com and click on Deconstructing Stress. See you next time.